The Communities for Just Schools Fund was started in 2010, 10 years ago. It's hard to believe we are. We are 10 years old this year. We were started as a national philanthropy specifically to provide grants and technical assistance to grassroots organizing groups that are working to end the school to prison pipeline and combat disparities in school discipline. We are a donor collaborative with 15 foundation members and now several individual supporters as well. We leverage the resources from philanthropy to make grants and provide capacity building support and connective tissue for our 60 grantee partners all over the United States and the world. Welcome everyone, thank you for joining. I wanna start first with gratitude to the ancestors. I wanna send a, a thank you to George Floyd and to Brianna Taylor and Tony McCade and Ahmaud Arbery and Sandra Bland and so many others. I wanna let us pause and say thank you. We are so grateful for your presence, for the legacies that you leave for us to live into and honor. The fires that are burning are fires of strength and fires of thanksgiving and faith, and they are fires of freedom. It will not be easy, this thing called liberation, but I believe now more than ever that it is to be because of you and we give thanks for you. I also wanted to say that, you know, in the midst of our collective hurt, we are also celebrating today. In Minneapolis, the school board voted on Tuesday to terminate the school district's contract with the police. And Portland, Oregon is, it seems, moving in the same direction and school districts all over the country are considering the same. And that is cause for celebration. Grassroots organizers have been pushing for police-free schools for years. and. Minneapolis is their first victory in the United States. We will hear today from organizers in Toronto who saw a similar victory in their school district and are now pushing for police-free schools province-wide. Andrea Vasquez Jimenez and Celia Argentina Arauz are the co-directors of Latinx Afro-Latin America Abya Yala Education Network, LAIN, in Toronto. We also will hear from Dimitri Holtzman, Director of Education Justice Campaign, the Center for Popular Democracy, and the founder of the Equal Education Law Center in South Africa. Jamie Coppell is my dear sister and co-director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund and founder and board chair of Bilingual Education for Central America in Honduras. And finally, Dr. Santiago Rincón Gallardo is the Chief Research Officer at Michael Fulan Enterprises Incorporated, and he's the author of Liberating Learning, Educational Change as Social Movement. So we'll hear from our amazing panelists in just a bit, but let me just provide some quick context. Starting in the late 1990s, Black and Latinx students, parents, families, communities started to organize in the United States to end the school-to-prison pipeline. Their work was to stop the ways in which anti-Black racism was showing up in schools. Black and brown children are still disproportionately suspended and expelled from school and referred to and arrested by police at school. And I'm talking about children as young as three and four years old preschool who are pushed out of school and are too often pushed into the hands of law enforcement. And this is so despite the fact that we know Black and brown children do not engage in criminal behavior or misconduct in larger numbers than their white counterparts. The education justice movement has evolved from resistance to visioning and implementation, and organizers are continuing to combat the school to prison pipeline 
They are now also envisioning the schools that we do want and need for our children to be successful leaders of an increasingly global society. So I am happy that you are here for this conversation today. What that work looks like right now in a pandemic and what it looks like for the future. We're gonna turn now to the first question for consideration and discussion. And that is what was education justice in the global community before the pandemic? What was it, what did it look like and what did organizing look like in different parts of the world? And to share with us, we're gonna hear first from the folks in Toronto who claimed a huge victory in removing police from schools. Andrea Vasquez Jimenez and Silvia Argentina Arauz are the co-directors of Lay-In in Toronto. Andrea and S.A. Hi. Hi. Thank you. We're so honored to be here. Just giving you a little bit of introduction to uh, myself. I am Silvia Argentina, yes, last name aroused, identify as an Afro-Indigenous Latina born in Nicaragua and uh, living on Turtle Island, predominantly known as Canada. I am a mother, I'm an activist, I am a certified classroom teacher, organizer, writer, poet, and just real, uh, <laughs> real source of, um, I think, energy support for a lot of people in the work. I'm here with co-director Andrea Vasquez Jimenez. So Andrea, do you want to take a moment and introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrea Vasquez Jimenez. I'm a proud Afro-Latina. I am co-director with, as well, I had ran previously as a candidate within electoral politics um, here, both provincially and federally with the New Democratic Party. And I truly believe uh, using multiple spaces to ensure that we further community organizing everywhere. Although you see the two of us, you know, I'd be remiss to not, um, you know, call into the space all of the people that have supported us in this work and that continuously support us, all of the ancestors of, you know, on which we are really, you know, advancing in terms of all of the hard work of so many before us. La N is an acronym for a very long name that tells you what we do. You know, we really strive to center African and Indigenous ancestries narratives that have been often ignored, misrepresented, or uh, erased from histories, from education systems. And we do that officially in the capacity of an, or of an organization that was founded in 2012 after a lot of activist work, um, a lot of siloed work, recognizing that the push-out rates, the, the level of police brutality faced by families with um, shared ancestries, that the policies and the programs and the curriculums were not representing the needs of students and families and community members of African Indigenous descent of Latin America ancestry. And so Latin has informed everything from, you know, your everyday programming, curriculum development, instruction, to educational policy, to, you know, working with stakeholders in academic spaces and non-academic spaces to advance liberated education. You know, Sebastian uh, and I feel it's very important always to set the context. You know, there's this mythology and there's this thought around Canada. You know, Canada, everyone's so nice, they're so polite, there's no systemic issues. Canada being named this North Star, right? And the reality is white supremacy is global. Anti-Black racism, anti-indigeneity, all these systems systemic oppressions are global. 
And so what we see is that there is a disproportionate impact on, on Black African diasporic peoples and Indigenous peoples, right? It's a mass erasure of Canada's history and present day realities, such as enslavement of Black and African diasporic peoples, such as colonization, taking of the land and genocide of Indigenous peoples. So there's a minimizing of the realities, uh, whether that be enslavement, uh, colonization, genocide, the disproportionate impacts of, of Black and Indigenous peoples that are incarcerated, that are within the welfare system, that are pushed out of institutions such as education, right? The school to prison pipeline disproportionately also impacts uh, Black African diasporic peoples. So uh, this is one of the books, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present by Robin Maynard, that really goes through the institutions, right? And so it's bringing it back to anti-Black racism, school to prison pipeline is live and well here in Canada, here in Toronto and globally. And that's why we do need to do furthering uh, this work everywhere. And that has been one of the critical roles that network partners with Communities for Just Schools have served to really bring to light how much of a pandemic this actually is, that it is happening globally, worldwide. And so that's our entry point as Latin into the work of advocating and pushing for police-free schools. So what we saw is that there was a need to really refine all of the community consultation data, the qualitative and quantitative data we were gathering to really bring together the past reports and recommendations from you know, people before us, organizers before us, and to center it in you know, the present day lived experiences of the students. And so we did that by coming together with our team and creating something called the Latin Three-Year Action Plan. And so within that action plan, uh, we looked to disseminate information about the school to prison pipeline to really let people know what was happening in Toronto and, and beyond when it comes to the ways in which black and brown students, as well as staff, as well as family members are being treated when it comes to the overrepresentation of them in suspension rates, expulsion rates, punitive disciplinary practices, uh, you know, how rampant it all is when you have you know, data after data telling you that the students want to see themselves in the curriculum. And yet, year after year, we see education systems roll out curriculum, pedagogies, uh, you know, um, formats and structures are not culturally representative and reflective of the families they serve. And so that was our pushing point towards the work of addressing police uh, in schools, because we had firsthand real-time stories from students, from teachers that said, you know, this injustices are happening. We have police uh, harassment, we have intimidation, we have sexual assault happening, and there, there's nothing that is being done. And it is from the inception of the school resource officer program that community has spoken out against it. So this is what brought us into the work. And it's so important to, you know, ground ourselves also in what are our pillars, what guides our work, right? And one of the things that does guide our work is Black Lives Matter Toronto, we will win as a social justice framework. The adamant belief and knowledge that we will win. Uh, we also uh, go by our pro-liberation pillars, you know? We are pro-education, we are pro-youth, we are pro-Black, we are pro-Indigenous. These pillars are fundamental to the way, um, not only our politics, but the way that we organize um, equity, really centering those folks who are most negatively impacted. You know, by way of inclusive design, what is necessary for some is good for all. One of our mentors, Jiwan Chanika, uh, superintendent at the TDSB, um, you know, has taught us this. 
uh, redefining of the term safety into healthy, right? And, you know, really thinking about caring, healthy, and equitable schools. Um, something shifts, shifting minds and hearts, because we know that this is work of love. This is a labor of love that we work towards liberation. But as you have heard us say, we are continuing this work. We have hundreds of signatures coming in for a petition uh, related to police-free schools Ontario-wide, and we'll definitely go into more of that. But there has been a lot of work, and, and with your support, um, and the support of hopefully newcomers to this this effort, we're going to be able to continue this work under the we will win ideology. Yes, we will win. We will win. Uh, we will win safe, healthy, equitable schools. Absolutely. Thank you both. And now I'm going to turn to Dimitri Holtzman. Dimitri is with uh, the Center for Popular Democracy. He's the Director of Education Justice Campaigns there. He's also the founder of the Equal Education Law Center in South Africa. Dimitri? Good afternoon to everybody. As Alison said, I am currently the director of the Education Justice Campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. And as you mentioned, I was also the founding executive director of the Equal Education Law Center in South Africa. I've only been in the U.S. now for just about four years. So I've been asked to speak a little bit about, about what education justice organizing looked like in South Africa pre-COVID. I'm obviously going to be speaking a little bit more, a little bit further back to the time that I was at Equal Education but as I think you'll see, the campaigns that were being that we were running at the time that I was there are still ongoing because of the massive issues that they were trying to deal with at the time and the fact that these are still going to be ongoing campaigns for a long time that might just be either shifted, threatened, or with new opportunities given the COVID-19 epidemic. Before I start about the campaigns, though, I do want to just reflect on something that we've actually started to speak about in the previous presentation and in the introductions in the beginning, which is the current moment that we're in right now. I wanted to just flag that on the 16th of June, which is less than two weeks from now, South Africa will be celebrating the 44th anniversary of June 16, which is now called Youth Day in South Africa. And I feel like it's particularly important to just kind of raise that in the context of what we're seeing in the United States today. Many folks might know that June 16, 1976 was the day that students in Soweto, black students in the township schools, walked out of school in resistance to and in protest against the Bantu uh, education system. It became known as the Soweto Uprising. There was, because there was, uh, while there was, you know, thousands of students that walked out of school on that particular day, they were met with police brutality. Students were shot and killed on that day. And in fact, folks from across the world might remember the image of Hector Peterson, who was a 14-year-old uh, student who was shot by police and died and became one of the iconic images at that time of the anti-apartheid struggle. And I say that because today and the last few days, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the Soweto uprising. It was an uprising. I feel like we are in a fully-fledged uprising right now. And despite the fact that I, I feel like for the last few months, while we've been I think uh, in some, some ways kind of forcing ourselves to, as organizers in this moment, to think about this idea of crises providing opportunities for us. And I firmly believe that. I think we've seen opportunities that have been brought about by the crisis. But to be honest, up until this weekend, it's felt like those opportunities felt so far out of our grasp. And it's only really till we've saw this recent uprising in response to the killing of George Floyd and many others just in this short period that two things have been inspiring for me, and I will bring this back to, to the equal education piece. 
One is that defunding police has now become an echoing call across the United States in a way that I'm sure many of us and many of folks that have been doing this work for even longer than I have in the U.S., if you'd asked three weeks ago, you know, would we be in this situation, we'd probably have said, you know, are you joking? But I think in particular for folks in the education justice movement and youth organizers in particular, there's an additional thing that's most, that's very inspiring for me and that I think is going to have some kind of global implications, uh, which feels important to this discussion. We've seen defund police become a widespread call, but the first actual win that's been a specific policy that's given a further articulation to what defunding police looks like has been at the school board level. So as was mentioned, Minneapolis, and we've started to see since Minneapolis cutting ties with the school police, a quite rapidly developing domino effect, which I feel so inspired by because to connect it to the 76 uh, uprising, at that time it was young people starting to fight against the racist education system that ultimately sparked the movement that overthrew apartheid at the end of the day. And so just want to flag that as some broader global context as we think about this particular discussion today. That being said, uh, to highlight just a few things about the role of the movement that I was part of and helped to build over my time in South Africa, Equal Education was a movement that a number of folks uh, started and built uh, in 2008, right? A number of years after we achieved democracy in 1994. What we set out to do at the time was to build a national youth-led movement that would advance strategies of mass mobilization, media advocacy, specific campaigns, and when necessary, strategic litigation in order to ultimately advance the right to basic education. That was our mission. Uh, we started very small. We started, in fact, I've got a post on our wall here, which is our first campaign, which was, it starts with broken windows is what the campaign said. Our first campaign that we won was to get 500 broken windows in one particular school in a township called Kailicha in Cape Town fixed. We won that campaign in three months. And over the next years, built on that momentum to develop what is now a national movement, which you know has 5,200 active high school members across five different provinces in the country. Yeah. And one of the biggest successes of, or biggest campaigns that is both relevant to the context of education organizing before COVID, and I think is going to continue to be such post-COVID, that we ran was a campaign around school infrastructure. At that time, there was about 3,500 of the schools in South Africa that had access to no electricity, water, or sanitation. Our campaign was to get the government to say that they needed to actually pass a law to say that any schools that fell below certain infrastructure standards should actually be illegal and would have to be prioritized to be fixed up. We were still fighting, and we are st they are still fighting today in South Africa for some of the most basic resources. I'm talking literally water, electricity, and sanitation. That campaign became one of the biggest efforts in the progressive education justice space in South Africa, but took three years for us, including marches of 20,000 high school students to parliament. It actually ultimately involved litigation to force the government to adopt this law to say, these are the minimum standards for schools. This is our plan to fix them. This is the law stipulating what minimum standards for school infrastructure, and this is the plan that government would set out to make sure all schools meet those basic standards. I can say more that campaign has been successful in passing the law. It's made sure that government has been forced to act much faster in fixing some of the most, those urgent conditions that I was mentioning in schools, and also created the space for a powerful national youth-led movement that was then able to continue that campaign, but also take on a number of other issues beyond just the school infrastructure and access to, to basic resources. I'll stop by just saying that as the movement grew and as it was seen that we would need more 
lawyers working under the movement, not above the movement, was ultimately, in short, the basis for us starting uh, the Equal Education Law Center, which I was basically sent to go and create, get some young lawyers that would work under the direction of young leaders under the youth movement at Equal Education. I would say that's still the core and one of the most important issues that folks, young people in particular, are fighting for in South Africa, a situation which only has been exacerbated by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll stop there for now. Thank you so much. So we're going to turn now to the, the second big question for, for conversation. And that is, you know, we sit, as you all know, at a critical moment. This is a, a moment that is uh, and will be transformative for the nation. Things will not ever be the same. We have a, a global pandemic, a, a virus that is ravaging bodies and economies. And we are confronting racism again. and in a way that is global. Uh, it is about support, but it is also about transformation and change. And so in this moment, what does global education justice look like? And we'll start with our dear friend and colleague, Jamie Coppell, who is co-director of CJSF, but also the founder of Becca Schools in Honduras. Jamie? Thank you, Allison. It's truly an honor to be invited into this conversation in this way, to be able to kind of marry my world that so often collide in my own private reflections, but not always in, in the viewpoint of the world. It uh, feels like a gift in my heart and a little salve for the moment in which we find ourselves. So thank you to my sisters at CJSF for this invitation. BECA is uh, an acronym that stands for Bilingual Education for Central America and for the Spanish speakers among us. That's a word that means scholarship, which is not unintentional. The most altruistic meaning of what it means to create access together to educational opportunity uh, in a very Paulo Freire sense is very much what BECA was grounded in when we got started in this work in the year 2001. Most basically, Becca collaborates with three community-led schools serving children in kindergarten through ninth grade in Honduras in the Northwest sector. And we got started almost 20 years ago, not long after Hurricane Mitch devastated the country. It destroyed 80% of school buildings, 80% of bridges. And while I didn't know to name it as this then, it was clear already that disaster capitalism was well underway. International companies were buying up land and people focused on charity-based responses that centered their opinions about communities' needs rather than collaboratively constructed solutions about power and possibility in education were very much the name of the game. And so in that context, I was in conversations with folks across the country about what would it mean to do something meaningful around the reconstruction, the reimagining, as we've been talking about lately, of education in the country. And what every single person I spoke with said was that if we wanted to make a difference and what we needed to do was to level the playing field when it came to access to high quality bilingual education, because and only because, to be clear, that English is an economic tool. And at that time, and sadly even still today, it is really mostly only the wealthiest families in the country, a country that has a huge wealth gap, that have access to a high quality bilingual education. And so we wanted to turn that reality on its head. 
And so we got started in 2001 with 38 students and half of a school building. We didn't have doors or windows or any of those things yet. We built those as we went over the course of the first school year. And there's a lot of things I'll share just briefly there to say that I think part of why Becca has been able to do what we've done in collaboration with our community partners is because we entered in in such a humble way. We didn't enter with all the solutions. We entered with this understanding there was something we were collaboratively striving for. And that's what we've been building together over the last 19 years. So fast forward to today, where we're partnering with three community-led schools, and we're providing a high-quality, low-to-no-cost bilingual education to financially disadvantaged families and students. We do that through multicultural collaboration, where we are clear and explicit with our team members that our international team members are there to learn from the communities in which they're working. And this is where I want to say candidly, because I'm speaking to the educators here. We really developed a more formal culture and context program because good intentions are not enough to get us to just educational environments. We have consistently seen that we have both the imperative and the opportunity to work with folks who have good intentions, but get it wrong. We need to unlearn their perspectives around savior complex, erasure, anti-Blackness, homophobia, that need support and guidance to consider their own country's impact on other places like Honduras in the world. But already, just a few months after this pandemic had started, remittances have dried up. And a country that was already struggling with economic growth through all the popular measurements of multilateral organizations has 9 million people that are going to suffer not only the loss of life of COVID, but the economic crisis of being an economy that is heavily reliant upon manufacturing for global markets and tourism. And I will say for the educators, again, among us that you know, we are an incredibly grassroots, scrappy organization that does almost everything we do on the power of human volunteerism as opposed to resources of the financial sort. And to see our team pivot immediately when the pandemic struck and schools closed, to be able to be in relationship with each other, despite the fact that bandwidth is almost non-existent for many of our students and families, to get that limited WhatsApp and to use it to be in conversations around arts and wellness and healing and to still be learning together makes me really, really proud. We're still working out what next school year will look like, but I know fundamentally from my work with Becca and what our students and families and educators teach me every day, that those relationships are core to the kinds of solutions that are going to ensure that our students graduate ready to change the world, which is what they have been doing. And that's what I think we all need to do in this moment is look for the policy solutions that advance justice, but also understand that that people-oriented work of changing schools, being in right relationship of centering those who are erased is fundamentally the most important work we can each do in our lives in this moment. So thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Dimitri, I'm going to turn to you again just to talk about um, in this moment of uprising, here and um, all over the world, what does education justice look like right now? So let me start just back to, to pick up on what I was saying on, in, in South Africa, actually this week was supposed to be the full reopening of schools after a few months of a very hard lockdown in response to the COVID pandemic. Just to flag that lockdown included army on the streets to impose the curfews, kind of in a similar way to what we're seeing possibly developing right now. 
and which has actually disturbingly included the death of civilians at the hands of army personnel on the streets. Uh, so just kind of want to flag that. And I'll come back to the SRO question about how, how that's a global export, in fact, from the United States that has recently reached South Africa, unfortunately. As I was saying before, you know, the, the context before COVID for organizers in South Africa and in general, you know, the education context was such that one of the biggest issues affecting the majority of black students in the South African education system, and in particular, the vast majority of poor black students, either in township areas, on the outskirts of cities, and even worse off in the rural areas, was just a complete lack of some of the most basic resources uh, in schools. One of the things that the organizers have been focusing on now as the government has prepared to reopen schools, uh, they actually pushed back the date. It was supposed to be the 1st of June. They pushed back the opening uh, of schools to the 8th of June and originally had made commitments to say that they would ensure that there would be adequate access to water and ablution facilities as well as PPE. In addition to uh, what is called the National School Nutrition Program, which is basically a, a national feeding scheme, which 9 million students across the country rely on sometimes what is the only guaranteed meal of the day. Unfortunately, that was suspended during uh, large parts of the lockdown. And there's been a core demand of organizers right now is the need for the reinstatement of the uh, school nutrition policy, as well as ensuring that those basic uh, services like water, sanitation and PPE is available. I'm sitting, you know, with most of you here in the United States. I'm not sure what to what extent the government is actually ready to be able to do that. It seems that they won't be. I can also tell you that I can't imagine a situation where uh, just recently there were still thousands of schools, like I said, that do not have running water on the property. Uh, how it is that they are expected to actually be prepared to ensure that there is health and safety standards as schools are opening. So those are right now the kind of two big issues that organizers are still focusing on is, and as I was saying in the previous input on this, that it does seem that the COVID-19 pandemic has created an opportunity to put more pressure on governments to move much more urgently to fix the basic infrastructure at schools, right? And this is a question of, folks have been mentioning the kind of underpinnings of white supremacy, which I believe and, and agree with, that being global of nature. I just want to put a finer point on that, that, you know, we're talking about white supremacy and also in the context of racial capitalism, which determines what priorities it are that governments would focus on, right? In this instance, I want to take you back very quickly to an example when we were organizing. South Africa hosted the, the Soccer World Cup in 2010. And we saw the quickest turnaround of a government being able to meet what were impossible deadlines. At some point, FIFA said they were going to take the World Cup away from us. But we saw nine stadiums built in record speed, new trains, everything, while we were at the same time campaigning to say, can we get schools fixed and school libraries, right? It's not that it's impossible. It's not that it can't be done. It's just simply a question of priorities, right? And racial capitalism determines what those priorities are and who the government's masters are. Our point of organizing is to try and flip that balance and flip the power so that we do reprioritize what is important. So the last thing I'll say, school nutrition, adequate access to PPE and ablution is, is critical, as well as the school infrastructure fight, I think is being getting ready to be ramped up right now. And what I've been hearing is that there is discussion about the possibility of school boycotts if certain of those standards aren't going to be met. Some of the teacher unions have discussed that. I know it's been discussed by some youth organizers but we'll wait to see what happens. The last thing I want to say, because the school-to-prison pipeline has been brought up here and feels really important, 
for folks that don't know, I didn't even know this since moving to the States. You know, in around 2015, the heads of the school resource officer program in New York were doing training for education officials in Cape Town, South Africa. The effect of that was that they have been implementing and piloting a school resource officer program, police in school, right? My hope to answer the question around what does education justice organizing look like in the United States, back to my earlier point, I do hope that what is happening in the United States right now is going to be cause for enough for organizers to look harder at the school resource officer program that was being piloted and with the intention of expanding in order to respond to this question of school, of school safety. And in particular for us to, to, I've heard these arguments where people say, well, the U.S. context is different to the United States, right? We have majority, more than 80% of our population in South Africa is black. The police officers would be black, often from your community. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are removed from an otherwise systemically racist system in which they are enforcing innocent state sanction violence, right? It's not in the formerly white schools that you see these police officers. It's only going to be black students that will be policed. And it won't be to keep them safe. It will actually be used as a way to repress any organizing uh, in response to that. I'm hoping this is a moment in which those, again, the echoes of the need to cut ties between police and schools. I obviously believe that police should be abolished entirely. But starting with the school fight, I hope that this is something that gives a new fire, uh, a new perspective to what safety looks like as a starting point to what transformative schools look like. I don't think the two can be separated from each other, but I also feel we need to, we also need to think of how do we prioritize towards what we fight and win now to get to a more transformative vision tomorrow. Well done, Dimitri. Thank you so much. I'm now going to turn to Dr. Santiago Rincón Gallardo. He is the Chief Research Officer at Michael Fulan Enterprises Incorporated. And very importantly, he is the author of the incredible Liberating Learning, Educational Change as Social Movements. Dr. Gallardo? Thank you very much, Alison. It is just a pleasure to be here and, uh, and be able to witness some of the work and learn from some of the work that has been presented by Dimitri, by um, by Jamie and, and, and our colleagues um, this afternoon. When I talk right now, and I'm going to try to be very brief, I think I'll, I'll try to keep to my seven minutes. I just want to say that I will uh, speak from uh, experiences I have been involved in directly in the Global South, as well as some experiences that I've been supporting more indirectly or learning about recently from the Global South. And um, a lot of the discussion I have heard, not only here, but uh, around the world, around uh, justice education and what's moving forward, I think this is a moment where a lot of our energy has to be uh, put into the freedom from kind of work. So taking the needs of police officers off of black bodies, it's a very important thing to do, right? It's freedom from what do we need to defund? What do we need to free our young people of color from. And there's a lot of energy that's being put into there, and that's a very important part of the work we need to do. I see also a lot of work being done around generating the basic, uh, the minimum acceptable conditions for schooling for young people. And that's also very important work to do. And uh, at this point, what I want to propose is, in addition to those very important pieces of work, minimum basic conditions and freedom from, is a freedom to um, agenda. What is it that we can do once we have our kids in schools uh, without police? 
what happens when they're in there and what can we reimagine when it comes to schooling. Because the bad news is even conventional schooling as it is, it's outdated, it is oppressive, and we need to rethink the way we think about, redefine the way we think about and do schooling and education policy if we want the promise of equality and justice to really be realized, uh, not only in big terms and money, but in terms of the everyday lived experience of our young people when they're in schools. So I'm going to be presenting and talking about experiences that I have witnessed and learned from in the global south. So four examples that I've been talking about that I draw from to bring in the discussion I want to bring in, the ideas I want to bring in, the Learning Community Project in Mexico, and initially grassroots, small-scale pedagogical innovation that started in 2003 in a handful of schools, uh, promoting child-centered, powerful pedagogies for deep learning in the most remote communities across the country. It expanded to 9,000 schools in the process of uh, 10 years. It's an example of pedagogical innovation focused on powerful learning in the most marginalized communities across the country that spreads at scale like wildfire. Escuela Nueva in Colombia is another example. 20,000 schools in rural Colombia, multi-grade schools that bring in very progressive pedagogies to the most remote corners of the country. And again, 20,000 schools showing phenomenal results in terms of the learning of the students, etc. Activity-based learning in the state of Tamil Nadu in South India, again, very progressive pedagogy centered on powerful, liberating learning in all public schools in the, in the state. 38,000 schools, and many of these schools receiving high percentages of uh, kids from the Dalit caste, the, the caste usually known as or, or named the, the untouchables. 38,000 schools, very progressive pedagogies. And on the other hand, community schools in Egypt, again, a very important innovation in a few hundred schools in the northern hamlets of Egypt, serving the most remote communities in northern Egypt. And again, promoting very progressive pedagogies and reaching scale and getting very good results. All these are cases of initiatives that have been developed and studied separately from each other. But everybody, every, many academics and many people who have learned about and written about these experiences have qualified them as social movements. What they're saying is this is not just a program, it's not just policy they operate as social movements. And they operate as social movements, not in terms of protest and campaigning uh, against, but as vehicles for cultural renovation, renewing in fundamental ways the nature of the link between adults and young people and the nature of the link between um, policy and schools, between leadership and schools. Here's a basic idea I want to propose, a very simple proposition, learning is a practice of freedom. And I think many of us can connect to this idea. What we learned well, what we know how to do well, we learn it in conditions of freedom. But learning as a practice of freedom, as, as simple as this idea is, is something that we're not seeing in schools, even well-resourced schools, even schools with a lot of money, and uh, even schools that white privileged children are going to, are not practicing this very well. And I think a lot of the work we have to do as we reimagine schooling and as we try to think about what the freedom tool looks like is to take this basic proposition seriously. Learning is the practice of freedom. What we learn in schools is learn to be taught. That's basically what we learn. We learn to sit quietly, to do as we're told. 
And that's when we get good grades and we get to access to the privileges that good grades and certificates, et cetera, give us. But that's learning to be taught. That may be an important thing for our young people to learn, but learning to be taught and learning to learn are two very different things. They are two very different things. And I think we need to put way more attention on the learning to learn side of the equation, especially in times like this. One of the things that the pandemic is revealing with the closures of schools is that many of our children are not prepared to learn on their own. And that's a tragedy because there's so much time they're spending in schools. And yet a lot of what they're expecting now is for adults to tell them what to do with all the free time. And that means that some of the work we have been doing in schools, even in good schools, in so-called good schools, uh, has been fallen very, very short. If we had to say it differently, what we believe and we, what we know about powerful learning and what we're doing in schools are two very different things. And again, as thinking about, yeah, about the post-pandemic world and education for justice, I think we need to start bringing more into center the idea of learning as a practice of freedom so that what we know and believe about powerful uh, learning becomes a lived reality of our young people in school, starting with our young people of color starting with those who have had the least opportunity and the least privilege uh, to access learning as a practice of freedom. Historically, schooling has fulfilled three functions very well. Custody, taking care of children while parents are working, control, and sorting. That's what schools were designed to do. That's what they know how to do well. But when it comes to learning, they're a very imperfect technology for it. And they're not only imperfect, they get in the way of powerful learning. If you were, had to invent a setting where the imagination, the creativity, the, the eagerness to learn of children gets just smashed into pieces, you wouldn't invent a conventional classroom, a conventional school. So again, this is what the schools are historically designed to do, that they do well, and we need to rethink the purpose of schooling. Uh, custody may continue to be an important role that they have to play. I don't know about control and sorting. I'm not sure about those, those two. About the custody, I'm definitely on board, especially these times in the pandemic, as I and myself and my wife are taking care of our two young children. The work that schools are doing to keep our kids safe and entertained, as you know, in, at no, least, sir. it's just phenomenal. And that's one thing that we need to continue to protect and value about schooling. But control, sorting, we need to rethink. Historically, in schools, the pedagogical core is defined by relationships that are vertical in nature. One person over another. One person who is deemed to know and who says what has to be done, the other person who has to do as they're told. And the relationship is hierarchical. It works like this. And this is very detrimental to good learning. Good learning occurs in relationships like this, where both parts are learning from each other. Both are learners and teachers. Both the young people and the adults in the room are learners and teachers. This is also important not only for learning, but for democracy. It is in relationships like this that you cultivate the mindsets, the attitudes, the beliefs that sustain authoritarian regimes. And I think this is one of the big tragedies of American democracy right now. <laughs> While there's a lot of important protests on the street, there's also a lot of mindsets and beliefs around of compliance and just doing as you're told. So when we think about changing the pedagogical core and when we do it, we're not only cultivating learning, we're cultivating democracy. We're, learning, we're developing the kind of relationships and mindsets and behaviors that we need for robust democracies. And I think it, it goes without saying, democracy cannot be taken for granted anymore. It has to be built intentionally. And there's a lot of uh, power in changing this basic unit. This is where we start to cultivate it every, in the everyday lives of our young people.
what an amazing occasion right now to get our young people to mobilize around issues that matter to them and to make that part of their learning so that they can start not only reading books, but also changing the world and learning about it in the process. And over throughout history, the vehicles to change culture have been prominently social movements. So in the way that social movements operate, like many of the keys to liberate learning and to move uh, towards justice and powerful learning uh, for our young people and for ourselves as adults as well. I'll leave it there because I'm over, over my time. Thank you. Thank you, Santiago. Yes, please. Learning is a practice of freedom. I love that. Love that. Thank you so much. I neglected to introduce her at the beginning, but our next speaker is Mercedes Martinez. She is the president of the Teachers Union in Puerto Rico, the Federation of Teachers of Puerto Rico, FNPR. And she's going to share with us her vision for the future of education justice. Mercedes. I'm very excited, very honored, and humbled to be a part of this conversation. I want to express I'm so thankful to Community for Just Schools for this invite. In Puerto Rico, we want to congratulate the people's movement and the uprising that's being held in the United States right now by all of the Black Lives Matter movement and the working class. Here in our country, we have been through two hurricanes, one of them category five earthquakes, and now this pandemic. So we are in the struggle of our lives, literally in defense of public education. Um, during this pandemic, the government of Puerto Rico tried to privatize virtual education and make it permanent for all the school system in our country. So that was the first battle that we had to give and we won in March, and they had to remove the bill that was submitted to the legislature to make privatization into full effect, taking advantage of this pandemic. After that, the government of Puerto Rico has been so neglectful that they denied our children of something essential, a human right as food. And all the cafeterias of our school were closed and were shut down. So we had to do massive caravans, protests, phone banking, whatever you can think of to make the government understand they needed to open up our cafeterias to feed our children and our families that have been without unemployment. We have more than 300,000 people right now without employment after this pandemic, mainly in the private sector. And we won that battle to the court system ruled that the Department of Education has to open up all the cafeterias in all our schools to serve food for every working family in the country that needs it. So that's a battle that we won. And today we are fighting, they never stop even in the pandemic, we are fighting against a government that against all the recommendations of the CDC is declaring that over 100, 1,000, I'm sorry, teachers are not necessary and they are eliminating teaching positions as we speak and they are trying to oversize their classrooms for next semester and have students in classrooms of 25 to 35 students per group. So this is a fight that we're giving right now, organizing the community um, virtually and physically. Tomorrow we have a protest and the news that we've heard is that they are going to revoke this decision that they've made and they are going to allow the teachers to remain in their positions and they are going to hire more teaching positions. Something that we have learned in this pandemic, well, we, we know it from a long time, that we need 
when we go back to school to work in a new curriculum. We don't want to go back to what we had. And we are divided into committees and we are preparing a true school reform, true pedagogical reform of emancipatory education following Freire's um, philosophy. And we have been working on that the entire pandemic and we are going to present this proposal as what our curriculum should look like. We do not want to go back to what we had. What we had was not enough for our children, for our teachers, and we have a very large group of educators that have been willing to work on this curriculum, and I want to share it afterwards with all of you because it's a beautiful curriculum that includes ethnic studies um, that is very complete in a holistic manner for our students, and we are going to make that proposal to the government to establish that curriculum for our children. So... We have a complete proposal for the government of Puerto Rico. Right now, we are working in alliance with our communities, and we work together with parents and students to make this happen. And what we want to do right now is we want our student class sizes to be reduced to 10 to 12 students per group. This is the first fight that we have to win in order for the proposal to take effect. So it's going to be a very decisive week in our country if we want individual learning, if we want a holistic learning for children. We cannot have classrooms, 25 or 30 students per room. Thankfully, in Puerto Rico, we do not have police department or cops in any of our schools, so that battle we don't have to give because we don't have them. But we do have 34% of our schools that have been shut down. And now in this pandemic, the government has realized that they need to reopen them. We had 562 schools in five years that have been eliminated. They wanted to shut down over 900, and the remaining were not shut down because of the fight that the Teachers Federation has given in alliance with the community. But now we have to reopen the schools that were taken from us. Now that the pandemic has struck in our face, the government has realized that they are in need to put in service for our kids. So I am very hopeful that we are going to win this battle. But the first step that we need to take is to have class size reduction in our classrooms for virtual learning or for presential or physical learning. And then we have to have the curriculum that we are proposing established. We do not want to go back to rote learning, memorization, and an education that does not serve the people of Puerto Rico and our children. We want an emancipatory education, and that's what we are doing with this curriculum for all grade levels that has been created by so many educators from the Teachers Federation that I am so honored to preside. So we are very excited about this curriculum, and we are talking to the teachers that if the government does not accept this curriculum from us, we are still going to implement it in our classrooms. It's time for a proper education to be given. It's time for our students to be served as they desire and they need to. It's time to listen to our students. And the Teachers Federation is a union that works in alliance with the community, with the parents, with the grandmothers, with our teachers, with our students, because we are a whole in this society. So we are very hopeful that in these times, we are seeing an uprising in our eyes. We saw it last year in the country and we know what is possible and what can be performed and obtained through education. Education is a constitutional right. And if they're going to start by virtual learning, we have to make sure that all of our children have access to it. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mercedes. So before we hear more from our friends in Toronto about the what's next question, I want to welcome any 
questions that you all have, any questions, comments that you want to share with us right now before we before we wrap. This Ellen, I do have a question for Dr. Santiago. I was one of the things I continue to bring up as a community-based organization um, is to have the kind of resources we need to support researching those programs that we develop that grow out of community. So I guess my question for you is, who's doing the funding for you to do this wonderful research that you're doing? Because for community-based organizations who are you know, on the ground working with families, it becomes critical they are part of the learning, but we can't, I don't know funder who will really um, support that kind of work. And as groups, you know, we know the curriculum isn't working for our children. So those are the kinds of resources. And I think Dimitri brought it up earlier. Those are the kinds of resources that we need. And we need funders who have the vision and the willingness and the tolerance to say to community-based organizations, you want to do that? Here's a researcher that we can partner with you. So I'll leave it there. Thank you, Ellen. That's a, that's a phenomenal question. I will say most of the research I have conducted myself about these projects has been uh, has had very little funding. I mean, I had I had scholarships, those kind of things. But um, what I see happening in movements like these is that even though the people running these movements and doing the everyday work don't have money to pay for a researcher to come and do their work. They have other resources that they put at your disposal. They can get you to, you know, get you to places, give you transportation, provide you food, shelter, support. In states that are dangerous to travel in, in Mexico, they provide their community uh, security. <laughs> so that you are always accompanied by the people doing the work, etc. So I haven't found, and I would, I mean, I, I'll get back to you when I find a particular foundation that's really supporting this kind of research. But what I have learned from these efforts is that there's much more resources available in communities, especially communities doing uh, education justice related work that cannot be measured in money, but that can allow for people to do important work and to publish and to learn about the work that's that's been going on, etc. So what I would suggest, and, and I, I think we can expect that funding will probably not be very generous in the years to come. So I think what we need to start thinking about is what are the resources, non-monetary resources, that are available in our communities that can help bring allies from academia who can learn about this kind of work? At the end of the day, there, there can be good alliances created with you know, justice-oriented researchers who need to look into work that's going on on the ground that's important, that's hopeful. So they can benefit from a partnership with a community where they don't necessarily get the money, but they get access to people doing powerful work. And they can reciprocate by increasing the visibility of the work, by providing some good critical friend feedback, by offering some, uh, some workshops and some training and some work to the communities they're, they're working with. So I think we need to think about creative ways to create these kind of links. I don't think there will be a lot of money for it, but within communities like phenomenal resources that I think we can untap and leverage to bring in good kind of public intellectuals who can help us increase the visibility for work and help us make it better as well. Thank you, Santiago. For the, the last few seconds that we have together, I'm going to turn to 
Andrea and Silvia Argentina to close us out. So just on behalf of LAEN, we really just want to thank you for all of the support. You know, we we shared that we have never really received this type of funding-centered support uh, that gives us freedom to do. And so thank you to the team. In terms of the message going forward, it's time to double down. It's time to really double down on the efforts and not think about what's shiny and new, but think of new ways of doing what we're doing to deeper our intentionality, to create stronger bonds, to ensure that whatever funding resources we have generate more funding and support generational wealth building. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thanks everyone for being here. We appreciate you. Stay part of the conversation and follow the Communities for Just Schools Fund at Just Schools on Twitter and Just Schools Fund Instagram. And please join me in thanking these incredible panelists again. Thank you all so much for being here, for being a part of this conversation. And please, please, please keep fighting, keep pushing, take care of yourselves. Can we do a collective snap? Can we all unmute and just snap into? Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, yes. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Stay strong. Stay strong. Thank you. Thank you. All. This has been great. I'm Thank you. Again. Thank you very much. Yes. So much. Bye. -bye. You guys are awesome. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Bye, baby. Bye. 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 Bye.